EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash inside EMS. Well, guess what time it is? It is time to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Subalero, and with me always is my good friend, the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, what's going on? I'm, I'm good, man. Happy Valentine's Day. I hope you got the chocolates and the candy hearts that I sent you. Was that from you? Will you Will you be mine, Chris you know Subalero? What? I guess I will. You know, I <laughs> guess I will, man. Four years together soon, and... Uh, yeah, I'm pretty honored. Thank you so much, but I don't like chocolate-covered cherries for next year. How about that? Okay. All right. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Um, so, I, I thought about greeting you at the door dressed in saran wrap and nothing uh, else. But yeah, that would have that, that would have made me turn right around and leave. <laughs> you would have seen what I had for lunch in that case. But uh, how are things going down there in Louisiana, man? You got your uh, your course should be finishing soon. Yeah. Yeah, they're they are taking their national registry exam today, and uh, I can't be there to offer moral support. So I'm as nervous as a long tail cat in a room full of rocking chairs. But um, how'd the course uh, go this year, man? Was it good or? Uh, every course has its own struggles. These guys were, uh, um, these guys were were uh, a challenge, but not not so that they're bad students. It's just uh, um, things. Every class has its own unique personality, and these guys were all uh, um, in the fire service and volunteers, uh, and and so they came into the class with some degree of experience right, right. Uh, in in emergency services, at least in a first responder role. Uh, the how problem that, is, though, is that yeah, how, let me ask they, you that: how, how does that work, though? I mean, when somebody comes in from a you know from a volunteer and they they're taking formal education. Is there a disconnect now between what they've learned as a first responder and then now as they try to get that next level? I mean, because I got to think there's a certain amount of, uh, well, let's just go ahead and pass the test, but we're going to go ahead and go back to the way that we've always done it kind of thing. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, they. Uh, w- one of the problems with this class was is, is they assume that what they've seen and experienced in EMS is how EMS ought to be uh, and, and how it's actually done. And, and it's been a struggle, uh, along the way to teach them. Yeah. Just cause you saw certain paramedics do certain things doesn't mean it was the right thing. Uh, and this is the way the EMS is actually supposed to be done and so on and so forth. So it was, you know, it was, it was kind of difficult in that regard. Um, and, and getting them past that hump, uh, and saying, look, this is the way EMS is supposed to be done, uh, and, and getting them out of their, their comfort zone, uh, is has been a challenge you know i've had to repeatedly say uh i'm not teaching a such and such a fire department emt class i'm not teaching a first responder at the plant emt class there is no such thing as a first responder and we don't transport emt class it is an emt class you are qualified after this class to go out and do all of those things um whether you practice to your full scope of practice in in ems is is another story but 
just getting them in that mode, you know, because they, they, they don't seem to want to get out of their uh, their um, Comfort their zone. own personal bubble, you know, and, and they, they filter everything that I tell them through the lens of my fire department or, or my plant or my industry and, and that sort of thing. So getting them to expand their horizons a little bit and understand how EMS is done outside of their their department has been a, a chore. But it's it's been worthwhile. They're, uh, I'm, I think my guys are going to do good, and they're going to rock it this morning. Uh, it's just if you're conscientious as an instructor, uh, uh, you you worry, you know, sure, <laughs> you sure. worry, and you take a little personal interest in these guys, and and uh, and you, you can't help but get attached to them and, and hope that they do well. I, I have a hard time remaining objective about my students. No, no, I I, I bet you would. I mean, but basically, you're putting your name on that whole. Uh, you know, on that whole process. So, you know, I think you bring up a really good point. And now when we think about transitioning, you know, people who haven't been in EMS and maybe, you know, I get your opinion on this or the first responders that have been in EMS and some of these first responders, Kelly, right? I mean, they could have 10 or so years of experience and all these, uh, you know, mm-hmm. habits kind of ingrained in them. So you as an educator now, how do you take that, uh, maybe the differences in students and mold them into kind of where they need to be. I mean, you've got ego, you've got experience, you've got inexperience, you've got, uh, you know, not knowing anything about it. How do you now as an instructor bring all those pieces together and make them one cohesive group into moving forward? It sounds like it would be a daunting task. It is. It is a pretty daunting task, man. And the first thing you have to do is understand your students' motivation and and get to know them as people, um, because you you can't just have a teaching method. And this is the way I teach my class, and this is the way I do that. Not with adult learners, uh, because each adult learner comes to comes to a classroom with different experiences, different motivations, and everything else. And and a, a wise instructor adapts within a, to a certain extent, their teaching methods, uh, to their students needs. Um, and not all of my students, for example, uh, are, do well with the hybrid method. So, uh, the, the hybrid, you know, flipped classroom concept is, is constantly in a state of flux. Uh, and, and I've had to learn to be very, very flexible. Um, so just mainly understanding each student's strengths and weaknesses, uh, and, and kind of tailoring, how I approach each one of them uh, has been the biggest chore, but it's it's the same thing that I've had to do with every other class. It's just a, a slightly different classroom model that I'm having to uh, having to adapt uh, this time. Uh, this this entire class has reminded me of the uh, the difference between uh, distance education and traditional, uh, but has also reminded me that EMT students are the same pretty much everywhere you go. You know, I think all that really makes sense. But, you know, one of the things that you just talked about, which really kind of raises my eyebrow is, and I got to be honest with you, Kelly, I've done this myself, where we get new students who come to the truck and we say, you know what, forget all that stuff you learned in EMT school. Let's go ahead and teach you how to be an EMT. And, you know, you kind of referenced it when you were talking about the volunteers have a specific way of doing things and they want to get through EMT school so they could go back to doing what they were doing. I mean, how did we get here? Well, you mentioned that one thing where uh, new students come out there and their preceptors tell them, well, that's how you learned it in school. That's how we do it on the street. Uh, That speaks to a really screwed up precepting program um, where, you know, the preceptor is supposed to provide confidence and clarity, not conflict and character assassination. All too often, that's what happens. But 
I think we got here, this idea, this longstanding, uh, it's almost become an article of faith that there's a way to do something for the skills exam and there's a different way to do it on the street. It's just horse manure, but it was brought about by people that don't understand the process of, of psychomotor testing and what it is designed to do and how it's, it is supposed to be done. Um, we really haven't had that problem in Louisiana. Uh, because our national registry exams, actually, we've had a, a really strong cadre of examiners for a long, long time. And I have been involved with that exam uh, ever since I've been an EMT. Uh, I was an EMT for like f three months um, when I first became a, a national registry examiner. And <clears throat> the way we test, we actually allow our examiners to use some common sense and some clinical judgment in determining whether a, a student... Um, uh, knew what they were doing in the station. And, and there's a lot of wiggle room on that skill sheet. Uh, unfortunately, you see in many other states, and I have tested these students who obviously knew how to memorize a skill sheet but didn't know how to assess patient or perform what whatever the skill was. They just learned to memorize a skill sheet. Uh, and the reason they were done that is because that's the only way they could pass. The examiners expect them to parrot the the testing instrument from top to bottom in the exact order that it is written on the sheet and using the exact same verbi verbiage uh, or they don't pass. And that's just horse manure. That's not the way National Registry intended it. Um, you can ask the, the testing uh, um, specialists there and, and guys like Bill Brown and, and Phil Dickinson and, and people who've been involved with National Registry for, for many, many years, and, and they'll tell you that that that's not the way it was supposed to be done. Um, I remember at our, at our exams, we had a, a, a stack of three ring binders called the national registry decision book. Whenever a student did something that we weren't quite sure if it was kosher or not, um, we'd call up, uh, we'd call up Phil Dickinson or one of the other guys and say, Hey, what do you think about this? And he'd say, well, you know, what do you think? Do you think it's a, a fail? Do you think it's a pass? Well, give me your rationale on it. And we'll give you ours. And we would write that decision down. So in case uh, a similar encounter ever happened again, we could have something to refer to, but yeah, we, we, we tend to our, our um, unimaginative instructors and, and overzealous skills examiners tend to treat that thing like it's a recipe, like you have to follow it word for word, straight down the list without deviation. Um, when in reality, it's designed to be a testing instrument and nothing more. And it is organized in such a fashion as to make it easy to grade. It's not necessarily the order you do something in. So if you, if you give your examiner some flexibility on how they approach the, the testing and the documentation on that thing, then you have a lot more room to teach an assessment uh, or a skill that works well in the street and works well in the exam station. And that's what I've been doing with my students, and it's worked well so far. So uh, I just got word uh, that they did real well today. They, uh, uh, all my students passed on the first time with, with one exception, I had one student, uh, fail a station because of a mental error and went in and retested it and smoked it the second go around. So awesome. I'm a happy man. That's good news. Good news, man. And you're a strong educator. And I think yeah. that goes according to your professionalism. So kudos, but you know, as you were yeah. talking about that, and I, I think we started off discussion, you know, this discussion with the thought of saying, um, you know, how do we change the mentality of the way that we do it on the street and the way that we do it in the class is the same one. And as you were talking about this, you know, this skill 
uh, reference, my mind started to think about how we do skills. And I'm going to ask you the question before I finish my statement. Do you do your skills today the same way that you were taught in EMT or paramedic school? I'm going to say the answer is no. Yeah, exactly. And neither do I. So now as somebody comes out of EMT school or paramedic school, if I say, and this kind of just dawned on me as you were talking before, is it wrong for me to say, forget how you learn that skill. Let me teach you a better way to do it. No, I, well, yeah, I think it is because I don't think that's something that you can teach. Uh, I approach my craft with, uh, 25 years of experience behind me. And a lot of the things that I normally had to pause to think about are now intuitive. Uh, I, I don't have to verbalize or even, uh, have a formal thought process on this. It's all about pattern recognition and, and, and any experienced clinician has, you know, they get to the point where you're beyond the protocols and you're off the page on standardized procedures because you've done it so many times that you only have to slow down and get methodical when you encounter a, a complex presentation. You have to be systematic and methodical about it to, to figure out what's going on. But vast majority of the time, it's 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 like you know blinking an eye. It's it's a reflex action, um, and I don't think that people get that by being taught to do it. I think they get that by experience because Chris Ceballero's way of processing information and his way of, uh, of approaching that, that, that skill or that, that particular call is going to be different than Kelly Grayson's way, not to say worse or better, but it's going to be different. Um, I think that the best way uh, a preceptor can can get a student confident or a new paramedic confident in his skills on the street and learn in that street sense and, and that intuitive reasoning uh, is just letting him make his mistakes, making sure that the mistakes are not big ones, uh, and then asking him to be self-reflective afterwards. What would you have done different? Uh, and, and maybe afterwards point out a, a better way. You know, when I, when I approach my students, I, I look at errors in, in two ways. You know, you got technique errors and you got process errors. Uh, a technique error is just someone did something different than I would have preferred, but it didn't alter the overall outcome. Okay, well, I'll critique that afterwards. If it's a process error, they're doing something wrong or in the wrong order, their priorities are, are skewed, uh, I stop that and, and redirect. Uh and that's the way I approach it in, in the classroom as well. Um, but I, I think that experience is the best teacher as long as it's good experience. The problem is, is, is so much experience is bad experience. That's one of the problems I had had with this class. These guys had a lot of bad experience. All right. Well, fair enough. So let me ask you this question. I mean, and, and we got on this, I, I guess we're going to stay on this subject of, you know, preparing people. And But how about this, Kelly? One of the things that I think we we were poor at is that we don't talk to our patients enough. As no, you, we do not. <laughs> as you now prepare your students, are you preparing them for the, this, you know, talking to them about through this whole process, okay, I'm going to take your blood pressure, uh, you're going to feel the squeezing, and hey, have you ever had an IV before, so what's going to happen is I'm going to put this tourniquet. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't do that enough, and, and we can't just grab somebody's arm and give them an IV without that, you know, without that uh, uh, them understanding what we're going to do. So how do you deal with that in the classroom and to get them ready for that? 
lots and lots and lots of practice and role playing. You know, I've got a video that's gotten a lot of uh, a play on on Facebook uh, of me and and my program director doing a mock scenario and role playing where she she plays an elderly, slightly demented uh, woman named Miss Dunlop, and uh, and I go in and I show the right way and the wrong way to gather a history you know the wrong way i make every mistake i'm abrupt i'm i'm looming and domineering and i've got really poor body language and and it's you know you can just see that i'm silently judging her as as she talks uh, and it's the wrong way to do things and she role plays right back you know and reacts how do you expect someone to react uh when the paramedic is obviously bothered by the fact that he has to go run a call on you um and then we do it the other way where you, you try to be a conscientious and caring uh caregiver and and relate to the person and and gather a history uh as part of a conversation way too many Many people look at history gathering, for example, as they treat it like an interrogation, <laughs> you know, um, and where were you on the night of September 14th when his chest pain started? That's right. That's right. You know, uh, I would much rather sit down on the couch or the bed next to them, uh, and shake their hand and hold their hand and assess their skin color and temperature and their pulse while I'm at it and have a conversation. And in the con- I'm directing the conversation, but that's what it is. It's a conversation about their health and about their current complaint that, that led to the 911 call. Um, I think that years back when we put the medical patient assessment into the, the psychomotor skills uh, uh, exam, uh, that went a long way toward that because there was a time when we only did a trauma assessment. Um, and, and you, the only talking you did was to your imaginary professional partners and to your examiner explaining what you were thinking. Uh, but in the medical patient assessment, you had to actually talk to a patient. Now, the problem is, is if you talk to the patient and you only memorize the skill sheet, you wind up kneeling next to someone and, or standing next to someone and say, man, what was the onset of your pain? What is the provocation and palliation of your pain? What is the quality of your pain? What is the radiation? You know, and obviously you, you've memorized a sheet, but you don't understand what you're what you're actually asking, and neither does the patient. And the way we always countered that was is we make sure that uh, our patients role play well enough that they act. Uh, they play dumb. What do you mean? I, I don't understand this radiation. Well, I don't know what pro- provokes and palliates means and, and make them converse with them like they would any other human being. Um, so we got better at the history gathering and that's an art form in and of itself. That's going to take people years after they, they get a patch on their shoulder to learn how to do effectively. Uh, but I think where, uh, we really took off is recently in the, in the last few years, we've had that integrated out of hospital scenario where, um, it ain't no verbalizing going on. You, if you want something done, you have to do it or direct a partner to do it and have enough command presence and, and, and leadership and, and scene choreography that you also note that they're doing it correctly or incorrectly and correct them as you go. And um, this, this class that just tested was one of the first in Louisiana uh, to test uh, that integrated out-of-hospital scenario at the BLS level, and yeah. they smoked, and I'm proud of them. That's awesome, man. That's great. To, so, you know, we've kind of been talking about, I guess, Kelly, the – 
you know, how we're dealing with this in, you know, for new students. So if there's, yeah. you know, EMTs, we don't get a lot of, uh, you know, people who are out there that uh, are not EMTs. But, you know, it's funny because I did get, uh, I, I forgot to tell you this, I did get an email from somebody who says they're not in the EMS field, but they enjoy listening to us, which was kind of oh, interesting. Awesome. So Yeah, but um you know, so we're kind of thinking about these EMTs who are going to paramedic school and maybe the best way they can deal with that. What about the paramedics that are out there that may have not um, climbed the, you know, the uh, psychomotor domain in the, uh, you know, in their skills? How do they now utilize what you're teaching in class to maybe help transition to transition them into doing better psychomotor skills in the field? One saying I'm really fond of is don't just do something, stand there. Explaining to a, a uh, one of my students last night in a practice, you know, one of those last minute, hold your hand, calm your fears, practice sessions. Uh, in the, she was struggling with the pre-hospital scenario. And I said, look, you know, don't just do something, stand there. And the better you do your job, the less exciting it is. Said you're you're upset because I'm throwing all these all these things at you and all these curves at you and it's ma- I'm making it chaotic. There's no reason it has to be chaotic. You're the one that controls that. It's your scene. You decide how calm or how chaotic it could be by your command presence and how you interact with other people. I said I, I don't get an adrenaline rush anymore because if I'm getting an adrenaline rush, I missed something. I screwed up and missed something important with my patient the better i do my job the less exciting it is i said and that's the what you have to to understand and you can slow down and think and that's that's what i mean by don't just do something stand there slow down take a deep breath assess the situation uh the tactical folks call it the ooda loop that 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 decision making cycle observe orient decide act uh, and you always want to uh, uh, be um, going through your OODA loop and, and deciding and reassessing and, and uh, reassessing your interventions and the scene itself and everything else and staying ahead of the game. If you let the events happening around you get inside your OODA loop, then you're in reaction mode and you can't control your scene anymore. You're just reacting to what happens. Um, so I'm, I'm big on being proactive about that sort of thing. and And it all boils down to um, slowing down and communicating better. You know, I, I tell my, I, I tell people this in my ACLS and my my EMT and paramedic classes. I said, you know, we'll watch the ACLS uh, video, you know, and the the mega code video, and I go, well, what kind of uh, in y'all's experience do codes ever run like that? And they go, well, no, of course not. Actually, they can. You know, uh, mine aren't all that different. I'm not wearing a lab coat, and I'm probably a little more rumpled and wrinkled uh, than the actors on the on the stage. But mine aren't all that different. And I imagine any paramedic worth his salt who who knows uh, um, how to direct a, a call and, and run a code uh, could say the same thing. Um, so you just slow down, and the more you talk, and the more you communicate, and use your your team members, the better off you're going to be. Um, all too often the, the new paramedic struggles because they think that, uh, now that they're in charge and, and they're the senior person on the, or senior certification on the truck that they, uh, um, they have to control every aspect of it. And, and like suddenly overnight, their EMT partner just got terminally stupid. Um, but 
you know, I hate to use that cliche, EMT save, uh, paramedics save lives, but EMT save paramedics. But the people that need the help of a good EMT the worst are usually <laughs> quite often the ones that, that uh, don't ask for it. But hey, that's what I think. That's what Chris thinks. We'd like to hear what you think. How does a paramedic get over that hump and become smooth and polished in his craft? Let us know at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Cebolero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.